The talk you are about to hear is by Roshi Amala Wrightson, teacher at the Auckland Zen Center. Today is the fifth day of our summer seven-day session on the 20th of January 2024 and we're going to continue uh, with um, affirming faith in mind and uh, also with some commentary from Faith in Mind, a guide to Chan practice by Master Sheng Yin, the late Chinese master. Next verse. The great way is without limit, beyond the easy and the hard. Beyond the easy and the hard. Boundless. There's no room for such comparisons in the great way. Master Sheng Yin says, the purpose of using Chan methods in training students is to sweep away any attachments that remain in their minds. If they desire to attain Buddhahood, the master may say, there is no Buddha. No doubt it is necessary to have a certain attachment to the method to gain some result, such as samadhi or enlightenment. But when your mind is a steady stream, uninterrupted by extraneous thoughts. The Chan Master will push you to let go of the idea of practice, to break your attachment to striving for an end. There are a few stories of Chan ancestors and their students which illustrate this. One student went up to his teacher and said, I want to practice to attain the way. The teacher said, there is no way to be attained by practice. Another student declared, I want to attain liberation. The teacher replied, who is holding you back? Who is holding us back? There was a student who said, I have heard it said that Shakyamuni, body, Shakyamuni Buddha left home, practiced for many years, and attained enlightenment. His teacher commented, Pah, what a pity. If I had seen him, I would have given him a good beating and thrown him to the dogs. You may think that these teachers are destroying Buddhism by making such statements but actually they are working to remove even the slightest attachment in the student's mind. When a person really understands what it is to have a mind free of discrimination, he can be considered capable of practice. To reach this point, faith is of the utmost importance.
Sometimes um, students will come and a certain particular kind of student will, will come to the te teacher and um, want very detailed, precise, nuanced instructions and feel that if they can just get a handle on what to do and how to practice, that will do the trick. But it really is, in the end, a matter of faith. Or we could say sincerity. It's not, and that's not something that anyone can give us, including the teacher. What sincerity means is is wholeheartedness, giving, giving of ourselves completely in as much as we can at any given moment. In Japan, um, people were given very little instruction when they were, when they were given mu. They would be just be given it and, and have to find their own way with it. When in the West, there's much more of an emphasis on explanations, and so uh, we explain more. But, but that's, in a sense, it's, mis it's misleading because um, it is a, something we have to do ourselves. It, the koan is designed to, uh, as we've said before, stymie us in a certain way so that we have to draw on deeper resources that we didn't even know we had. And sometimes that means facing difficult emotions that come up when we sit. War on faith here. Some people may think Shakyamuni Buddha and the ancestors left the home life and cultivated for many years before they attained enlightenment. As for me, I don't think I'm up to becoming a monk or a nun, so what's the use of practicing? If you consider practice to be difficult and painful, then practice is difficult and painful. But if you consider it easy, then it's very easy. Practice itself is neither difficult nor easy. As I said before, there is nothing inherently good or bad in events themselves. Discriminations of good and bad, difficult and easy, are in our own minds and have nothing to do with the phenomenon itself. Difficulty and ease come up in the practice. We, we rejoice when we're experiencing difficulty and we um, complain or, or um, try to stop it when we're, we're facing difficulty. But it's, it can be very helpful to recognize that these are, these are value judgments that we put on, on our experience. There's... Um, a wonderful little story about the Pang family who um, 
It's Layman Pang and his wife, Mrs. Pang, we don't know her other names, and their daughter, Ling Zhao. And it, it's all, all the, 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 the parents and the, and, and the daughter, Ling Zhao, and then also a son, were all said to be awakened. And this, here's a little exchange between Mr. and Mrs. Pang and Ling Zhao, or among them, it's better to say. Mr. Pang, Layman Pang, said, difficult, difficult, like trying to scatter 10 measures of sesame seed all over a tree. Mrs. Pang said, easy, easy, like touching your feet on the ground when you get out of bed. And Ling Zhao said, neither difficult nor easy, on the hundred grass tips, tips the ancestors teaching. Who's right in all of this? Great way is not with, is without limit beyond the easy and the hard. Beyond. Bigger than our, our labels. going on here about good and bad. Someone asked me, how can you be concerned about alleviating suffering if you hold on to the concept that there is nothing really good or bad? I gave an, an, a response which may help to explain it. While you are sitting, your leg becomes painful, but as soon as you stretch it out, the, the pain goes away, and of course, unless it's injured in some way. There is no question that it hurts, but the pain is not real because it does not endure. It is capable of changing and disappearing. It is the same with good and bad. They are subject to change. Bad can become good. That bad exists is only a particular way of seeing and dealing with things. Pain is still pain, but what is important is your understanding of its nature. From that perspective, you can learn to alleviate your own suffering. When it comes to seeing the suffering of others, you can reflect on your own experience. Even though you tell yourself that suffering is empty, you still feel pain. Likewise, in teaching others, even though they may say that suffering is non-existent, you cannot deny their experience of suffering. As far as they are concerned, pain is real and direct. Thus, from the perspective that suffering is unreal, you still respond to that unreal experience. You strive out of compassion to alleviate the suffering of others. I think this is an important explanation because we can get um, confused about um, how to respond to suffering if we don't understand this. And, and the understanding of suffering as being um, unreal can also help us to sustain our help of, of, in difficult situations. And what, when Master Xinyin says not real, what he means is not intrinsic. Because the thing, things that are intrinsic don't, 
come and go. But everything, everything that is conditioned does come and go. There are two ways of understanding that practice is neither difficult nor easy. A beginning practitioner can only understand it intellectually. She may believe that practice is neither difficult nor easy, but this is quite different from knowing directly through experience that the difficulties are just fabricated by the mind. There is nothing difficult about practice itself. The individuals themselves bring difficulty to the practice. During retreat, one person may find practice extremely difficult, another may find it easy. It can be different for the same person even at different times. It has to do with our mental attitude or the way we approach it. And often it has to do with um, mental and physical tension. If we can relax and soften around the pain, then that'll make a huge difference. If, on the other hand, we do have uh, an injury, then we have to take care of that, that injury by sitting in ways that don't exacerbate it. Because you could say that the, the exacerbation is also empty, but then we still have to deal with the results if we, if we aren't um, paying attention to what, what the, the damage requires. People respond to difficulty in different ways. Some people become so overwhelmed by their troubles in practice that they end up without any discrimination, letting go of their hopes as well as their despair. As a result, the instant they turn their minds towards practice, they get a good result. Although this may happen, it is not the case that everybody needs to go through some kind of process. In fact, when some people encounter trouble, it does not reinforce their practice at all. On the contrary, they are unable to practice. Their minds are filled with thoughts of misery and a sense of failure. You should have faith that every method is a good method and every individual is a good practitioner. After all, if you are not a good practitioner, why are you still here after five days? <laughs> You're on day five. If the fact that everybody has, has persisted this far is proof of their sincerity and the fact that they are a good practitioner, given all the struggles that people go through. But we could ask this also, um, are you not a good practitioner after five years that you've persisted in the practice, or 15 years? or 25 years. Why are you still here? Because, because at least among the reasons is because you deep down, you have faith in the practice. Next verse. But those who hold to narrow views are fearful and irresolute. Their frantic haste just slows them down. So the great way is without limit, but we get caught up in our narrow views. And 
often this results in fear. And the chapter on this verse is headed in the, in the, the book, is headed anxiety. He says, those who take up the study of Buddhism before their views have expanded are subject to fears and doubts. Before their views have expanded. When, when we're still caught up in our narrow views and, and haven't quite fully appreciated the, the, the great way, or we lose sight of it as we go along. If we have lost sight of this great way, then we can um, doubt our practice and whether we can re reach our objective. One of the ways in which our, our views can be expanded is through um, studying the sutras. We can be reminded of the, the, the scope of this great way by that means. Or, or practicing the Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes, which um, invite us to which we start with, our, with ourselves, those close to us, but that then we, can, can, we expand our love and compassion outward to include ultimately all beings. And this, this expanding of our, of our views really helps in the, in the, the work we do with the Khan. Takes us out of a shallow and limited perspective and helps us to, to um, overcome our anxiety Everyone should believe that even if they cannot become enlightened, enlightened this time, they can do so in the, the future, either in this lifetime or the next. Do you, do you have faith that your method can lead you to enlightenment? Or do you think it's just the beginning, that later you will learn more advanced methods? Do you believe that Chan practice is reliable? Some people may think, I just came here to take a look. There will be other things to learn in other places. Over the years, I've met many people who lack faith. Because, this is, because of this, they reach a certain point and cannot go further and further. They have a partial faith. They may have confidence in themselves, but do not trust the method. Or they may have faith in the method, but not entirely trust the teacher. Some people may trust the teacher, but doubt what levels can actually be reached with Chan. This mixture of faith and doubt prevents them from having a deep experience. I should um, caution here, though, of course, uh, faith can increase, and our doubts can lessen if we sincerely practice, because faith is based on experience. 
Of course, if there were no sense of doubt in the beginning, you would not be motivated to practice doubt in the sense of questioning things. After practicing diligently, you will gradually resolve the problem of doubt. It all depends on your karmic roots. When those with deep karmic roots come in contact with the teachings of Chan, they quickly accept them. But those with shallower roots have obstacles which prevent them from believing in themselves, the method, or the teacher. The first requirement of Chan is faith. You should believe that you are the ones with deep karmic roots. Otherwise, why would you ca have come to this Chan retreat? Compared to the multitude of people in the world, those who undergo Chan training are very few. Very, very few. It is extraordinarily good karma to, to have not only encountered the Dharma, but to be able to practice it. Many, many people in the world are just struggling to survive. And yet all of us have not only the, the, um, the knowledge of the Dharma, the contact with the Dharma, but enough leisure and, and wealth to be able to come and spend weeks like this in seclusion, working together on the great matter. This is all evidence of, of good karmic roots. Perhaps you still do not believe in yourself, the method or what I am talking about. But beginning now, I hope you will start having faith. It does not matter if you are not enlightened yet. Just like a blind person being guided by someone who sees, a person who is not enlightened can borrow a teacher's guidance and experience. It does not matter if you start out with narrow views, as long as you can emerge from them. When you try to understand or judge matters that are beyond your background and experience, it is natural to have some doubts. Use a mind of faith to, to cure your doubts. It is very important to give rise to a great faith to achieve results. You should have complete faith in what I am teaching. As to the environment, it does not matter whether this is the ideal place to practice. Is there anywhere, ultimately, that is not a good place to practice? And we spend most of our time not in this ideal environment or near ideal environment. Lucky most of us to, to, to do session once or twice a year. But the sooner you want to get results, and he is now talking from the other side, the longer it will take to get anywhere. Once someone was driving me to an appointment, since he wanted to get me there as quickly as possible, he decided to take a shortcut. Though the road was shorter, it turned out that the traffic was heavier than on the normal route. Another person 
was required to take the English, English equivalency exam in order to apply for a US visa. She thought of a quick method. Before she actually wrote anything down, she would first skim through the entire text to weed out the questions she did not understand. But by the time she went through this first reading, the time was up and nothing was on the answer sheet. It's making haste can often be counterproductive. It is the same with practice. If you keep asking yourself, when am I going to get enlightened? You will always be in that state of mind and never get anywhere. It is the same when you have trouble getting to sleep and you look at the other people sleeping soundly around you. If you become anxious and keep worrying, why can't I sleep, why can't I sleep? Then you will never get to sleep. With this um, asking ourselves, when am I going to get enlightened? Makes me think of um, driving my parents crazy when we used to go in a, a tiny mini minor from Auckland to up to the Tutukaka coast. And of course, it, it's not that far, but in those days the roads, roads were pretty bad, so it was maybe maybe four-hour drive. And probably after we'd been going about 10 or 15 minutes, I would be saying, and when are we going to get there? Have we, we nearly got there? The more you want the benefits from Chan, the further you will be from obtaining them. In fact, you will only increase your vexations. You may be a highly intelligent person who works very hard and has good karmic roots. But if you are anxious to get enlightened, you have created a barrier between yourself and enlightenment. A tree should be watered very gradually as it is growing. Do not be in a hurry to eat the fruit. We none of us, we none of us, none of us know when that tree is going to be reaching maturity. It's our job really just to, to water it. And for a long time at the beginning, if we grow that tree from a seed, it's not even visible. So all the, all the action is going on underground. We don't even see it. Continues, consider the story about an inexperienced farmer who planted a field of rice. After the crop sprouted, he kept going out to look at it, saying, why isn't it growing any faster? Then he thought of an idea to help it grow. He pulled each stalk out a little taller. The next day he said, I think I'll go and help them again. But when he surveyed the field, all the shoots had died. There is a Chinese saying, you can't dig a well with one scoop. Another one is, you can't keep, eat cake in one bite. It is better for the digestion to choose food until it is very fine before swallowing. It is the same with practice. Don't try to swallow your practice in one gulp. Chew it patiently. You have to be careful and meticulous. 
And there are, there are pluses to this slow maturation in that um, there's still training going on um, through, the, th through all our practice. And what we, what we do before a Kensho experience um, enriches our practice generally. And certainly we come, may be able to integrate that Kensho more fully because of what we have experienced beforehand. Whereas somebody who has a very early Kensho may not have that um, experience and have to do the work after the Kensho. If you're attached to anything, you surely will go far astray. So again and again and again, we're, we're admonished to give up our attachments. It's perfect, important to understand that um, it's not necessarily mean we give up the thing itself, the thing that we're attached to. Um, for example, you're attached to your children, but that doesn't mean you're going to leave them. But it may very well mean that you need to look closely at the, your relationship and, and um, discern the ways in, in which you are clingy. And this actually will, will enhance your relationship with your kids. The same with, with uh, certain uh, personality traits, seeing through them and seeing, seeing uh, how we attach to that identity doesn't mean that necessarily that, the, that that aspect of us needs to be eliminated. It may just be, be that we need to loosen up around it. Master Shingyan says, when you grasp onto something, find a happy medium. For example, if you grasp the incense board, the kyosaku, too tightly, you will hurt the person you are hitting and may even break the incense board. But if you hold it too loosely, you cannot aim accurately. You have to hold it just right, not too tight, not too loose. In any activity, you have to find just the right way to do it. This is difficult to accomplish without practice. I constantly tell people on retreat to relax, mentally and physically. But some people don't know how to do this. Others are too relaxed. As soon as they sit down, they slump over. You cannot practice this way. Slump over, in other words, fall asleep, fall into a dull state. Even though your mind is relaxed, you should hold tightly onto the method. Again, another important point. Stick to the method and do not let it go. But sometimes people take this advice and become nervous and tense. For instance, in counting the breath, some may become so intent on holding to the method that they end up holding onto the breath itself, thus breathing unnaturally.
or they try to get rid of stray thoughts by counting and breathing faster and faster. This just tenses the body. You should hold tight to the method, but at the same time you should not let yourself get tense. To illustrate this, suppose you are walking along a road and it starts bearing to the right. If you keep to a one-track frame of mind of just sticking to the present thought, you will not allow for the bend in the road and will walk straight ahead into a tree. Once I gave someone the Huado, what is Wu, in other words, Mu, I told her to keep her mind on this one thought moment to moment, to never leave this question. After a while, her mind jumped to something else and it became, I am Wu. Rather than correcting herself, she thought, Shifu told me to stay on the present thought. She kept repeating the statement, I am Wu, I am Wu. Finally, she said to me, there's really no point in this. I already know the answer. There is nothing, and this, the literal meaning of Wu is, is nothingness or, or, nothing, or absence sometimes. When I tell you to hold on to the method, it does not mean to grasp it blind, blindly. Sometimes you have to adjust. I am teaching one method, but everyone is unique. Their background, physique, age, experience are all different. If you just take what I say literally, it could be that you heard it wrong or that you start practicing it wrong. Therefore, you cannot go by that entirely. You have to test it out on your own experience. You must be aware of what is going on. And some, sometimes we can take the, the practice up in a sort of mechanical way, just repeating it in the mind. But this is not going to be helpful because you, your mind is, is not engaged. You've got to really involve yourself with the practice, with the question. And that may mean exhausting your thinking about it or trying to work it out. But it has, that has to be exhausted at some point. And to just open up to the question. And coming from a place of, of wonderment. gives some examples of what you must be aware of. He says, if your breath is not flowing smoothly, then it should, could be a signal that you not, are not practicing correctly. Ask me about it. There was a student who was sitting in the correct posture, but his backside became very painful. He was putting too much pressure on his tailbone. I advised him to lean slightly forward and straighten his back so that this bone would not touch the cushion. If you come across a problem like this, you should not continue on in pain because you think you're doing as I instructed. Of course, I would not teach something that causes you pain. You just sometimes have to make your own adjustments. You could just bring some uh, uh, intelligence to the process and, and rational thought in the sense of if something's not working then 
look at that, what's going on there, bring it to the teacher. The next chapter is headed being natural. Just let go now of clinging mind and all things are just as they are. In essence, nothing goes or stays. See into the truth of self of things and you're in step with the great way, thus walking freely undisturbed. The most important thing in practice is to be natural and spontaneous. Being natural does not mean neglecting anything. It requires careful attention. In meditation, you should sit in a natural posture and use your mind in a natural way. Sitting in a natural posture means sitting just right. If you are comfortable when you first assume a sitting posture, even if pains develop in your legs later on, that is still natural. It is unnatural, however, to sit bent over and leaning to one side or tipping your head back. A natural posture should follow the demands of your physiology. It is not natural to tighten your stomach muscles or to straighten your back by protruding, protruding the chest. So what he's really saying is that a posture derives from... Um, natural laws, the laws of physics, really. Um, we guide, we're guided by uh, how our body works and, and then can find, find a posture that's, that's sustainable over the long run. If, it's, if we're in any way out of alignment, it won't be sustainable, again, in the long run. And, and uh, thinking and having a long view is important here. To use your mind in a natural way means to avoid trying to control it. The more you try to control your mind, the more stray thoughts will come up to bother you. This can be one of the causes, actually, of of a very active mind is if we're trying to control it. And of course, in, in thinking about our, our wandering thoughts, we're adding another wandering thought to the pile. Therefore, if you have many stray thoughts, consider it a natural phenomenon and do not despise them. But on the other hand, if you completely give in to a train of wandering thoughts, that is not correct either. What is the best approach? Pay close attention to the method. If you do that, stray thoughts will keep to a minimum. It is not that they will not arise, but that you will not worry about them. 
If you are really paying attention to the method, you will be aware of a stray thought as soon as it arises. When it comes up, just let it go. Do not be afraid that another thought may follow it. That fear is an extra stray thought. It is just like a person who is carrying a stack of bowls. If someone says, be careful, you're going to drop them, then he will more like be likely of dropping them. But if nobody said anything, he would just keep going. Now, next he talks about, about failure, not, to not fear failure. Do not fear failure. Whatever happened in the past is past. Do not worry about it happening again. And I wonder sometimes if, if the, our tendency to think of, say, about this, this session is going to be the one, and many of us have got into this habit of doing this, may in part be because we, we don't want to feel that disappointment at the end again. But really, really, every sashin is the one, whatever happens in it. Every sashin is the one in its own way. Can we find a way of, of approaching it that is, is creative, constructive? If we, if we, if we come into the sashin saying this is the one and then we have a hard time, we'd probably be disappointed even before we get to the end or anxious about whether, whether we're going to do well or not well. Master Shen Yin says, failure is natural and necessary. As a baby walk, learns to walk, it keeps falling down. Is this failure? Throughout our life, we go through similar processes, going to school, pursuing a career, practicing Chan. After my first book, someone said to me, now you're a success. I said, no, that book was a failure. I would write it much better if I had to do it again. It is the same with practice. There is never a successful conclusion. conclusion. When you are working hard, failure is natural. If you have never failed, you have never tried. I have... Um, card file which I keep with quotations in it and um, the, these, the stack of cards on, on failure is quite, quite thick and I'd like to share with everybody a few of them to conclude this, this talk. First one is, is about Thomas Edison who invented the light bulb and he tried more than 2,000 experiments before he got it to work. And a, a reporter once asked him how it felt to fail so many times. And Edison said, I never failed. I invented the light bulb. It just happened to be a 2,000 step process. In the similar vein, Michael Jordan said that he, in his career, he missed 9,000 shots. He lost over 300 games. And 26 times he was trusted to take the, the winning shot 
and, and missed. He said, I failed over and over again in my life and that is why I succeed. Being, being ready to fail, being willing to fail. We can be encouraged by the fact that people who try to give up smoking stop and start again on an average of six times before quitting for good. What, what a pity it would be if you got, you'd quitted five times and started smoking again after that and you said, there's no way I can, I can succeed at this. It's five times that I haven't managed to stop. I mean, on average, it's after six times that people quit for good. Only our failure to understand the role of loss in our lives keeps us insistent on trying to win. And Samuel Beckett, I'm sure people have heard this one before. Ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. This one's been kind of adopted by consciousness movements. We'll give um, Rumi the last word. Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshipper, lover of learning, it doesn't matter. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Come even if you have broken your vow a thousand times. Come yet again, come, come. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.